0: Some of you may feel a bit overwhelmed with all the material that has been dished out. And all of us, if we are seriously pondering these great themes, are very much aware that we can't begin to live up to any of them on our own. But we have Christ in us, who is the hope of glory. And you know that verse is from Colossians 1 verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember that a mystery is something revealed, but not explained. And how Christ can live in us and through us is a mystery. But we affirm it. We receive it. We believe it. And I hope that as we go out from here, there will be a new consciousness of what that hope of glory can do in us. We all have hopes. Everybody has hopes of one kind or another. And my dear friend, Bunny, whose name is really Elizabeth Lasker. She's, I would consider, perhaps my very closest friend. I hardly ever see her. She lives in San Francisco. And she has five adopted children that she got when she was in her late 40s. And she's about one year younger than I am. So she's got teenagers. And uh, she's a medical doctor. And when she was in training in in, uh, New York, She was walking down the street and saw a huge crowd of people gathered around something. And so she made her way over to the edge of the crowd and she saw that there was somebody lying on the sidewalk. And so she called out in her her bold voice, and Bunny is a woman that no no one would ever accuse of being shy or backward. She said, make way, please, Make, make, make way, please. I'm a first year medical student. And she said, I beat my way through the crowd and a man was kneeling beside the person on, this, on the sidewalk and he looked up and he said, well, I'm the doctor. Funny <laughs> was totally humiliated. <laughs> she thought this might be her hope of glory, that she would have an, an opportunity in her very first year to do something really heroic on the street of New York. <laughs> and I think of the thrill of looking forward to the publication of my first book. I was in the jungle, of course, and there wasn't anybody around there that was reading English, but um, I had gotten word that Through Gates of Splendor had appeared, and so I was wondering how long it was going to be before I might meet somebody that had heard about it. And it wasn't too many weeks before I received a radio message that there was a pastor from Michigan who was wanting to see some of the jungle stations, and so the pilot was going to be stopping in my station just very briefly. And so my heart swelled with excitement and I thought, well, surely this pastor will have heard about it. And um, he arrived and had to hike the whole 10 minutes up to my house from the airstrip and he was just exhausted by the time he got to the house. It was very hot and I had to revive him with lemonade and there was a lot of small talk and he went on and on about his church and his trip and Finally, he got up and he walked over to the picture window that looked out on this beautiful panorama over the Napo, the Atunyaku River, which is one of the tributaries of the Amazon. And he said, Mrs. Elliott, I'm sure that by this time you will have received many compliments on this view out here. so much for the deflated balloon. (laughs) And I'm sure that all of you can think of stories in which your hopes were dashed. But Christ lives in us, and he is the hope of glory, which is something far, far beyond our wildest hopes and dreams. I think one reason that God didn't give us more clues about what heaven is going to be like is that we would never manage to keep our minds on our work if we knew. It would be like telling little children ahead of time what where the Christmas presents were hidden. Our first talk was on incarnation. So that's the first point that I want us to review a little bit. The word was made flesh. God came in the form of a man. Why? The world is looking for holiness. It doesn't know that that's what it's looking for. But every now and then there is a glimpse that awakens people's curiosity and interest. And they begin to realize that there is something beyond what this world has to offer. And I pray and trust that God will have worked in each of us during this weekend so that there will be a new measure of sanctity, which is the same thing as holiness, that we might be changed into his image from glory to glory. That is the promise that we have not changed into storybook princesses or heroes or famous people, but changed into the image of Christ. Saints is what we're supposed to be called to be saints. That occurs several times in Paul's epistles. He writes to people and says we are called to be saints, and that is our calling. Saints are not just that small category of people who have been officially canonized, but according to the New Testament, they are those who belong to Christ and in whom Christ lives. And we are meant to be saints, not just when we get to heaven, but in this world. Without having our circumstances changed, necessarily, but having our vision of what those circumstances can provide in the way of opportunities to die to ourselves and to live unto God. I guess I've said 20 times in this weekend that what matters is our response to things. It's not what happens, it's how do we respond and how do we look to God for us. Now, I think that one clear illustration of the difference of response with absolutely no change in circumstances would be the two thieves on the cross. One of them was repentant and recognized who Jesus was and acknowledged his own guilt. The other one did not. They were both still nailed, as was Jesus. But the response of the one caused Jesus to, to say, today, you will be with me in paradise. We've talked about mystery, and that is the mystery of Christ in us that was hidden from all the ages, but finally revealed to Paul so that Paul could be the instrument through which that wonderful message came. And Paul says, in Galatians, I think it is, I travail in birth till Christ be formed in you. It's not the only place where Paul uses the maternal metaphor. He traveled in birth. He went through the agonies of bringing new souls into the world and seeing that Christ was formed in them, just as a mother not only gives birth physically, but then from then on, she is seeking to shape that child into a godly person or we could put it more crudely and say that what you receive is a little barbarian and God wants you to civilize him, but civilize him in such a way that he will fit into the kingdom of heaven. I can remember listening to Marge Saint one time when she was correcting Kathy, who was then probably about seven or eight years old. And Marge has a very sweet, calm way. I don't think I've ever seen Marge Saint upset in my life. But I overheard her saying, when Kathy was saying, oh, Mom, I don't see why I have to do this. Well, oh, Kathy, dear, because I'm trying to make you into a nice little girl. It was quite clear that Kathy was not nearly so interested in being made into a nice little girl as whatever it was that she wanted to do that her mother didn't want her to do. But you travel in birth, don't you? And the older your children get, the more you travel. There's a certain amount of malleability when the child is born, but it begins to harden and become less and less easy. Now, how does this transformation happen? How is it that Christ is formed in me? And I believe it is a process. It's a lifetime process that he will be formed in us, not in a different set of circumstances, but in the events of my life, which are sacraments of what? Sacraments of his will, sacraments of the will of God. Events are the visible evidence of the will of God. Events, circumstances, people, my lot in life, that which is assigned, allotted, apportioned, measured out exactly by an all-loving and all-wise father who knows exactly my needs. You know the phrase, whatever my lot, from the great hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way. All I could think of was ascendeth. I thought, what's the matter with me? You can see that I'm getting senile very rapidly up here. (laughs) Uh, Attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. There's two different kinds of circumstances, aren't there? The kind where peace like a river attends his way, and also when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. It doesn't matter whether things around us are well, but the response of my soul is, it is well with my soul. Is it the second or third verse that says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And I'm sure you all know the story of the situation which inspired that hymn, the death of Horatio Spafford's four children in the sinking of a ship. I had the privilege of sitting down and having tea with... Spafford's fifth child, who was not born at the time of that disaster. This was in Jerusalem back in 1967, and she was in her 90s. But she told me the story that she had heard directly from her mother's lips. Her mother was on the ship as well and was the only one of the five that escaped. The father was not on the ship at the time. And she said she'll never forget her mother describing the terror when they were thrown into the frigid sea. And she had these four little girls, And she said she reached, she tried to dive after one of them, and she was able to touch the hem of the dress of the little two-year-old just with the tip of her fingers. She couldn't grasp it. And the mother was found floating unconscious on the top of a piece of flotsam. Nobody could ever explain how she got on top of the piece of flotsam, but she sent a cable to her husband, saved alone. So it was... Out of a very deep experience of pain and sorrow that he wrote that. It is well with my soul. And we sang that hymn at the memorial service for the five of five men. A response of one who knows a sovereign and loving God. It doesn't change no matter what happens in our circumstances. He in whom Christ dwells responds as Christ responds to the Father. Not my will, but thine be done. To love God is to love his will. And as I learn to love his will, I am more and more closely united with Christ. And this is a picture of marriage. The two elements of marriage, the two elements of love, are intention of unity and concern for the good of the beloved. Intention of unity, concern for the good of the beloved. If both partners in a marriage kept in mind those two principles, there would never be a divorce. It would be an absolute impossibility. It's a picture of our relationship with Christ. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. To love Him is to love His will. I intend to unite myself with his will because I love him. Love is the intention of unity. Concern for the good of the beloved ought to change my thinking about whether God is doing what I think God ought to do for me or whether I am doing what I know I ought to do for God. My concern should always be for the other and not for myself, assuming that God is going to take care of me as long as my concern is not for myself. As I learn and I'm united with Christ, who loved the Father's will, I then am opening myself to this pervading presence of Christ in me, and my hope of glory becomes brighter and brighter. We have said many times how central that cross is, and the cross is a place that reminds us of christ's sacrifice because he loved the father and because he loved us it meant death to himself and the cross for you and me means death to ourselves i am crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but christ liveth in me and the life which i now live where in the flesh This life, which I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's just as though Paul is almost stumbling over his words, just pouring them out, trying to articulate in human terms this mystery. He goes back and forth. I am crucified. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Back and forth. It's still inexplicable, isn't it? And yet... We understand it to a certain measure. In my book, Passion and Purity, I have a chapter called Unruly Affections. The Book of Common Prayer contains collects, which are short prayers comprising ideas gathered or collected from the day's reading. The one for the fifth Sunday after Lent is this. Almighty God, you alone can bring order, bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. To love what you command and desire what you promise. That among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And I go on to say I had been reading my Bible, I believe, quite faithfully nearly every day through high school and college. Before that, if I did not always read it myself, I heard it read at home by my father, both morning and evening. It took no specially profound understanding of it to know that I did not begin to measure up to its standards. As I grew into womanhood and began to learn what was in my heart, I saw very clearly that of all the things difficult to rule, none were more so than my will and affections. They were unruly in the extreme, as the diary entries attest, bringing anything at all into order, a messy room, a wild horse, a recalcitrant child, involves some expenditure. Time and energy at least are required, perhaps even labor, toil, sacrifice, and pain, the answer to the above prayer, the bringing of our unruly wills and affections into order, will cost us something. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Christ is formed in me as I bring my unruly affections under his lordship, as I bring all my emotions, all my decisions, all my will, voluntarily to him and put myself under his tutelage and his authority. Number three, the difference Christ makes. Maybe you've lost track. Number one was the word made flesh. Number two, how does this happen? And number three, the difference Christ makes. Some of you, I trust, are familiar with this little gem of a devotional book called Daily Strength for Daily Needs. It's been around for a hundred years. The author is Mary Tyleston, or Tilleston, I don't know how it's pronounced, T-I-L-E-S-T-O-N. She was born in 1843, died in 1934, and she wrote two absolutely priceless devotional books. The other one is called Joy and Strength. So if you can get your hands on either one of them. The last I heard from my grandchildren, they had found Daily Strength for Daily Needs in Barnes and Noble. But when I went into Barnes and Noble in Boston, they didn't have it, never heard of it. So I don't know. But either one, Joy and Strength or Daily Strength for Daily Needs, they're just marvelous. I read them over and over again. I've indexed both of them. And this is what it says, a quotation from Hannah Whitehall Smith, which gives us a clue to the difference Christ ought to be making in my life and yours. I have noticed that wherever there has been a faithful following of the Lord in a consecrated soul, several things have inevitably followed sooner or later. Meekness and quietness of spirit become in time the characteristics of the daily life. A submissive acceptance of the will of God as it comes in the hourly events of each day. Pliability in the hands of God to do or to suffer all the good pleasure of his will. Sweetness under provocation. Calmness in the midst of turmoil and bustle. Yieldingness to the wishes of others and an insensibility to slights and affronts, absence of worry or anxiety, deliverance from care and fear. All these and many similar graces are invariably found to be the natural outward development of that inward life, which is hid with Christ in God. We need to be very clear in understanding that this natural outward develop, development has nothing to do with our human nature. We are still in this natural body, but it is found because of the inward life which is hid with Christ in God. I was talking with someone just before the meeting about the this whole matter of bringing your unruly affections or feelings under the lordship of Christ. It's not that we're going to get beyond... The emotions, which are very natural to us, but God wants to transform those and transfigure us in the process as we bring those under his control. So I'll, I'll go quickly through the key words in each of these things that, that show that a, a, a soul is consecrated. Characteristics of a Christian, or the, the difference Christ makes, as I call it. Meekness quietness, acceptance, pliability, sweetness, calmness, yieldingness to the wishes of others. Insensibility to slights and affronts. Absence of worry. Deliverance from care. Now, this word meekness is certainly not one that most of us would use to describe ourselves. I believe that one of the outstanding characteristics of a meek spirit is teachability. And when one begins to follow the Lord in earnest, these things will be begin to be evidenced. Now, may I see the hands of those of you in this room who were born with a meek and quiet spirit? I don't see a hand, nor have I ever in any audience of any size. The awful truth is that we women were not born with a meek and quiet spirit, and it's pretty obvious that Eve certainly didn't have it when she decided to take things into her own hands. But meekness is not weakness. Never confuse the two. Do you remember who the meekest man in the Bible was? Moses. Meekest man who ever lived, he's called. And Jesus, in Matthew 11, tells us, Come to me, all you who are tired and overburdened. Anybody here that fits that description? And I will give you rest. Now, you and I might be able to provide rest. I might be able to provide the conditions in which you could rest. But I cannot give you rest. Nobody in the world can give you rest except Jesus. So he says, come to me if you're tired and overburdened. I will give you rest. But there are three things that you have to do if you want it. First is to come. The second is take his yoke. And what does that mean? It means bend your neck under the same yoke which Jesus himself took when he bent his neck to the will of the Father. I believe that the metaphor here represents probably the double oxen yoke. Two oxen were put together so that they had to work in harmony and at the same speed, walking side by side. So when Jesus calls it my yoke, I don't think it's one that he is laying on us that hasn't already been laid on him. He himself came, as he said, to do thy will, my God. And he bent his neck under the will of the Father. So that's the second thing that you and I must do, is to be willing to bow and bend our necks in order to walk in harmony, to live in harmony with Christ, to uh, be one of a team, cooperating. And then he says, learn of me. Third thing is to learn. And what is, what is it that we're to learn? Well, he tells us, I am gentle and humble in heart, meek and lowly. And we know that Jesus was not weak. He was the lamb of God and he was also the lion of Judah. Meekness is teachability, the unselfishness, and lack of concern for one's own safety must be a part of that. Pliability. Yieldingness to the wishes of others. When you have a disagreement with your husband or with your coworker about something that you're going to do and you had your heart set to do this thing, let's say we're talking about going to a restaurant, something that trivial, and you don't get your way. What a big deal. What kind of a big deal is it in your life? How long is it going to make any difference? A week from now, for example. And well, you're cer- certainly not looking at a woman who has one atom of natural meekness in her. I am by nature aggressive and argumentative and a whole lot of much worse things. But Jesus Christ is going to make a difference in making me teachable, meek, gentle, humble. It also means submissive acceptance or accepting submission. Whichever way you want to put it, the two things seem to go together in my mind. I'm not submissive in any way at all. My mother used to have to say to me repeatedly, don't argue with me, Bets. Do what I say. And way up into her late life, we were still having arguments once in a while, very friendly arguments. But she used to laugh and say, well, I never could argue with you. And uh, we had very different personalities and very different ways of coming at things. And, of course, I had been a debater in college, so that <laughs> didn't teach me much about meekness and submissiveness. The third thing is sweetness. quietness, especially under provocation. How sweet can we be when we are provoked? Are you standing up on the inside like the little boy? His mother made him sit on a chair and he mumbled away after a while she heard what he was saying. I'm sitting down on the outside and I'm standing up on the inside and that's the way I feel sometimes about submitting to my husband. I still have to do it, no matter how nasty my inner attitude might be. I trust that God gives me grace not to, ex- not to express that. But I want to learn to be sweet and quiet. Third is peace versus anxiety. And Jesus has a kind of peace that the world can never give, and He promises to give us that. I know people who literally bring peace into a room. One of them is my dear friend, Meyer Walters, who is a Welsh lady, a medical doctor who never took her training in this, and never passed the exams in this country so she doesn't uh, practice. But every every day during the last weeks of my husband's life, she would come to the house for about 10 or 15 minutes just to see him. And she knew, and we knew, that there wasn't anything that she could do for him as a doctor but she would just walk into his room it was just like an angel of the Lord coming in and just bringing peace and I could just see my husband sort of relax and every day she would walk over to the bed take his hand and bend way down and say tell me how you feel and of course all he wanted to do was to tell somebody how he felt and he would told me so many times I didn't want to hear about it anymore (laughs) when dear Meyer would come over It was the moment he lived for, those few moments every day. It was just as if he was carried through from one day to the next by the peace of God that that woman brought. She's one of the sweetest, quietest, calmest people I've ever known. Willingness to yield to others. It's not too different from B, which is submissive acceptance. The more highly opinionated we are, the more difficult it is for us to yield to others because, of course, we know we're right. You know, there's two ways of doing something, the my way and the wrong way. (laughs) And the willingness to overlook affronts. Do you always feel that you have to let somebody know that she has hurt you? Do you feel a spiritually a spiritual, moral obligation to go to her and say, I just want you to know that I forgive you for what you said to me last week. And She says, what did I say? And she has no idea that she said anything. So this is a way of extorting an apology, which I don't think is an apostolic virtue. <laughs> it's got to go. The willingness to overlook affronts. This would be evidence of Christ in me, Christ in me, the hope of glory. We are to be the incarnation of the life of Christ. Ever heard that before? This is our hope. So whenever we are aware of how far short we fall, of all the things that we've been talking about this weekend, let's remember the wonderful promise, the Lord God will help me. Isaiah 50, verse seven, which is in the King James, I think it's quite different in the more modern translations, but I love the King James translation there. It says, the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Whenever you feel in absolute despair and helplessness because you've made such a mess of things and you're not beginning to live up to all of these things, It is not you that's ever going to be producing the life of Christ. It is the life of Christ in you. Have you received him? Your answer is yes. Do you want to be holy? Your answer is yes. Do you think God is less interested in helping you to be holy than you are in getting there? Of course not. And with that, I'm going to stop. Isaiah 43 two is another one, the one I quoted last night, when now passes through the waters. Isaiah forty one ten is the verse that my father gave me when I went away to boarding school. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. He is going to keep that promise Christ in me, the hope of glory. Now I think we have time for one or two questions. Yes. How do you think, um, that you broadly, how do you think that our Christianity has been affected by the American culture? How has our Christianity been affected by the American culture? Well, probably in the same ways that Christianity has always been affected by whatever culture it was in. I mean, there, there are many different kinds of temptations, and I think American culture being so, being so luxurious, by comparison with most of the rest of the world and so um, machine oriented in the sense that we can always find a way to fix things. We are addicted to fun and comfort, which couldn't be more couldn't militate more strongly against the demands of the cross, giving up your right to yourself. And taking up the cross and selling everything you have. We've got to have fun and comfort. And this certainly has pervaded the Christian church. I can't get over the comfort of the Christian churches that we go into. And the enormous amount of money that's spent on comfort. And food. You can get people out to almost any meeting as long as there's going to be food there. And of course, well, you can think of a thousand ways. Another... Another aspect of what I see happening that infects the church is the refusal of authority, which is probably the most serious thing, the refusal of of anybody's authority, including God's. I'm going to do my own thing. That's the American way. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. This is a free country. Please give a few words of encouragement and or instruction to those of us who are single and in our 30s. Well, I could give you a whole hour... On that, actually, I did have some notes on that, thinking we might squeeze it in somewhere. I would say everything that I've been saying, God is in charge. He is sovereign. He loves you. He will give you what you need. I don't have any special message for people who are in their 30s. My heart goes out to you because I understand that there are various factors in our American culture that have led to this back in my day my friends were mostly all married by the time they were 21 or 22 i felt very ancient because i didn't get married till i was 26. there is a whole generation of men who are afraid of commitment and there are too many choices in the world we were talking about that at the breakfast table that's one thing that's wrong with america too many choices men are absolutely paralyzed on square one they don't know where to go what to do Max said to me the other day, he said, I, I don't think one college student in a hundred has any idea what he wants to do. My grandfather graduated from college, got a job, and married my grandmother all within less than a year. And that was the way things worked, generally speaking. A man knew what he was going to do, and he wasn't afraid to take on a wife. God knows all about those circumstances. There isn't anything we can do to change them accept acceptance this is the will of God never mind whether the evil came by the hand of man by this outward senseless nature or whatever it is to us the will of God so Lord what is my response to you it is yes Lord and it's only one day at a time you know that you have to be single several people have asked me I don't several people said to me I don't think I have the gift of singleness And I suppose what they mean by that is some special gift which removes all desire for marriage. I don't think very many people in the whole world have ever had that. But the Catholic Church, of course, has always recognized the importance and the necessity of having many, many single people in order that they might be spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers, the priests and the nuns. That's what they do. And they make the commitment, not because they have no desire for marriage, but because they desire to serve God in that way. When somebody says, do you think I have the gift, do you think I'm supposed to have the gift of singleness? I sim- simply say, well, are you single today? Yes. Well, then you have the gift of singleness <laughs> for today. God has given me the gift of singleness more years than he's given me the gift of marriage in spite of having three husbands. So it's on that particular day that I am to glorify God as a single woman. God could change it next week and bring along a, a husband. If you had school-aged children today, how would you educate them? I certainly would strongly consider homeschooling. I was alarmed when my my daughter decided to do that. She had had two children in, in school. But I have been very very pleased and impressed with the results i don't say that i think everybody ought to homeschool but this question is how would i do it i think i would certainly consider that and i did homeschool valerie for the first 3 years as long as we were in the jungle when we came back to this, this country it didn't i didn't know anything about homeschooling it never crossed my mind now there's a very very burgeoning movement last year we spoke at a homeschooling convention in pennsylvania and they told me that there had been 2,000 people there the year before, and the year last year there were 5,000. So it gives you some idea of how it's growing. Do you have any more stories about Mrs. Kershaw? <laughs> <laughs> Dear Mrs. Kershaw. <laughs> um, we were sitting in my sister's apartment one time, and... Uh, as I told you, Mrs. Kershaw never knew what the conversation was, so she would just come out with these statements. And and she she was sitting there looking up at the ceiling, and she says, Harrison uses a lot of paint, too. <laughs> <laughs> and it, not long thereafter, my sister was working, in this was a real small apartment we could see into the kitchen, and she was out there fixing something, and, and I heard the garbage grinder Start Well, we didn't have a garbage grinder at home, and I doubted that Mrs. Kershaw had ever seen one, you know, so I beckoned her to come over, and I showed her what Jenny was doing. And she looked at me and just smiled. She said, just puts it all down. <laughs> and we were sitting at breakfast one time, and there was a painter climbing a ladder outside the window. And Mrs. Kershaw was watching him go up and down, and she said, gets around pretty soon. <laughs> meaning supple, of course. But that's become a byword in our family, you know. In our old age, most of us are still getting around pretty supple. I, too, would be interested in being notified of your passing. I don't have a plane ticket or a plane, and I'm happily married and really don't enjoy estate sales. But since we are sisters in Christ, in Christ being a minor technicality, I would be interested in a portion of the inheritance. <laughs> Karen Shin. And I don't suppose Karen wrote that either, did she? Where is Karen? You did not write it. What should be? What? Who did, who did write it now? Confess. What should be the objectives of a Christian school? Well, a Christian education. (laughs) And if you want to know what a Christian education is, we'd have to start over last Friday and, and do the whole seminar. Of course, you want teachers who are going to incarnate the life of Christ. You want people who have a sacramental vision so that when you're teaching mathematics or biology or English, you teach them that everything they're looking at is transparent or translucent. They look through these things to the light of the glory of God behind, etc., etc. How can we confront the aggressive influence of secular counseling and Christian psychology on the clear message of the cross, and solid biblical principles. How can we stand against this tide? I've done my best to answer that question this week. I don't know any other way that we can confront it but, but by living holy lives. And as for specific things that you can stand where you can stand against the tide, we need to be extremely discerning and careful about what we call Christian psychology because there are a good many Christian so-called Christian psychologists out there. They are Christians and they may refer to the word of God, but they have been trained in secular psychology and they don't realize how that has infected the way they interpret scripture. The Bible says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And I do believe that there's a great deal of ungodly counseling being given out by people who one would suppose are godly. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember... The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.